Are you optimists or pessimists? Just a just quick show of hints. Who, who, here is opti- who, who here is an optimist? All right. Fair number of optimists. How many of you are pe- pessimists? Okay. All right. Well, um, lately sometimes I feel like I'm not pessimistic enough. Um, I'm sure you, you know what happened Friday. I was at the gym. I had done most of my workout, but now I was on the treadmill trying to get some cardio work. And they've got the TVs lined up, and I saw the news coming out of Texas. Another school shooting. So I spent some of Friday and Saturday just trying to understand exactly what had happened, just to understand the, the nature of yet one more school shooting. And, of course, to understand the context, because it's not the only school shooting. This is a list of all the school shootings, or not a list. This is a display of the school shootings that have happened since Columbine. And so when I see news like this, I become pessimistic. In fact, I, 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 maybe I started pessimistic, but I become more pessimistic. I think to myself, there's something deeply flawed with our world, that, that these are maybe the new normal now. We just have to assume that there'll just be more school shootings from time to time, and we need to figure out what we can do about it. So I spent part of Friday and Saturday thinking like that, but I also saw a presentation on Friday. I saw a presentation. Did anyone else see the presentation by Elon Musk talking about the boring company? He's got a boring company. And basically he said, he said that um, we were told that the future would have flying cars. But it turns out there's a lot of reasons why flying cars are very hard. So he said instead of going up, we should go down. And so he's built a company with the idea of creating tunnels all over the place. And not just one or two tunnels, not a subway but basically a, a vast network of hundreds and hundreds of tunnels under every major city to relieve congestion and to save uh, energy and, and cut down on um, carbon emissions. So he's got this grand vision of a future that could be so much better than our current future. He said, he said really, when it comes to building tunnels, they're really not all that tricky. Um, you know, it's just that they don't get a lot of love. And he said, you know, the thing about digging a hole in the ground is it's not rocket science. And he would know because, of course, he's also the, the proprietor, the founder of, of um, SpaceX. And he's been doing all kinds of amazing things um, technologically in the area of rocket science. So, so what are you, an optimist or a pessimist? You know, when you turn in the TV, when you go to YouTube, when you look at Facebook and you see what's going on, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? Well, like I said, I'm kind of pessimistic, but but the... The data is pretty compelling that I'm wrong. Um, I, I, had a, I had a job at a company once, and people gave me, gave me the nickname Sunshine, ironically. Um, they, they did not see a lot of sunshine coming from me. But, but really, that's not the right attitude to have. There's a lot of data these days that tells us that, um, that things are getting better and better. Uh, this book right here, Steven Pinker, The Better Angels of Our Nature. I have not read it um, because it's the size of a phone book. Um, but um, I open it up periodically and read a little bit of it, uh, you know, some little information. It's filled with, with charts and graphs telling us that, that basically everything is getting better and better. You see the subtitle. I don't know if you can read it. It says, Why Violence Has Declined. And so when you see something like um, we've been seeing in the news the last couple of days, when you see news stories about uh, school shootings and so forth, um, it's important to understand the context, which is, uh, that is happening as part of a, a widespread 
trend away from more violence. It's actually the world is becoming safer and safer. Um, he wrote this book in 2010, and last summer, because of all the, the prominent violence we've been seeing in the news and so forth, he wrote um, an addendum. You can go to his website. You can Google it. Stephen Pinker. He wrote an addendum and said, well, is that still true? I mean, it's been several years since the book. Is that still true? And so he's looked at FBI crime data and so forth, and he's found that, no, actually, the, the trends are still downward. The amount of violence in the United States and the violence in the world is trending downward. Um, we've got some distance to go to be uh, equivalent to a place like England, but but it's still headed in the right direction. So, um, like I said, I don't read this book, or I have not read the book. I kind of read at it once in a while. I open up a chapter and read about, you know, how education or healthcare or things like that things are getting better. But there's a place I do go to uh, more frequently. It's it's a place called um, ourworldindata.org. It's run by an economist named Max Roser. And it's kind of like Snopes for for news. If you hear news that there's been some, you know, a shooting, if there's a war or something, it's a place where you can get more context and understand how does that fit into the overall scheme of things. And what what he says agrees with what Pinker says. Um, in a lot of ways, the world is getting better and better. This is um, uh, um, a chart showing homeless people in the United States. When I drive around Anchorage, I might be tempted to think that homelessness is getting worse in Anchorage, but... If so, then it's an outlier because, in general, across the United States, homelessness is actually getting better. And it doesn't seem that way because we don't have the context and we don't approach it numerically like a, um, like a, um, economist would. So you can see the, the light orange is sheltered homeless or unsheltered and the, uh, dark, uh, darker color is sheltered homeless. So you can see there's a big gap there. There's a lot of people who are living rough, but, um, but the number is smaller year after year after year. So in a lot of ways, the world is getting better. This is a chart showing uh, the share of the population of the world that is undernourished. And again, um, I'm not saying that those people are enjoying themselves, but I'm saying that the trends are in the right direction. Things are getting better. And I want to show you this graph. Um, I, I spoke about this in, in the prayers of the people a couple of weeks ago. This is the most amazing graph that you've never heard of. Yesterday... 137,000 people were lifted out of extreme poverty. That also happened on Friday and on Thursday and Wednesday and Tuesday. It has happened every day for the last 20 years. 137,000 people a day for the last 20 years. A million people a week have gone above this threshold that economists pay attention to. It's called extreme poverty. It's about $1.90 a day. And every day for 20 years, more than 100,000 people have been lifted out of poverty. So even though the number of people in the world has increased enormously, you can see the growth in the number of people, even though there's more people competing for the same resources, somehow people are getting wealthier. More people are escaping poverty. This is an amazing graph, and, and it's one of those things that if you, didn't, if you didn't know the numbers behind it, you would not believe it. But it's true. The world is getting better. And yet, there are those people living rough. There are the people who are still below that green zone in the chart. There are people who are in bad places because the world is getting better, but people aren't. You know, when you hear the news about a school shooter... I think you have to ask yourself, 
what brings somebody to that place? What makes somebody so twisted and malevolent that they could do that? And what do you do about them? I mean, what does Elon Musk do about them? What do we, as a, as a society, as a, as a world that has found amazing ways to make the world better in so many ways, what do we do about school shootings? Well, turn on the TV. There's plenty of opinions. There's people who say we need fewer guns, that if we had fewer guns, there wouldn't be so many shootings. There's other people who say, no, we need more guns. We just need them in the hands of good guys. And there's all kinds of theories about how to accomplish both of those. And one of the things that someone like uh, uh, Max Roser or Steven Pinker says is that's a good debate to have, that eventually we will arrive at a solution, that we can take hope. We will find ways to prevent school shootings. But will we find a way to prevent people wanting to shoot schools? Martin Luther King famously said this. He said, morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. Judicial decrees may not change the heart, but they can restrain the heartless. So we can be of good hope that in a world where things are truly getting better, where violence is declining, there may be a good way, a good public policy approach to reduce the the amount of uh, violence in our schools. I think that that's great, and I commend people who are at work on that problem. But as a pastor and as a citizen, I ask myself, what about the heartless? Right? We can restrain him. We can keep him from doing damage. But what about the heartless? What do we do with him? Now, I know what a lot of people would say. If I was a parent in Texas or in Florida or in a lot of places, really anywhere, my first response might be to say, well, he can rot in jail. And then when he's done rotting in jail, he can rot in hell. And maybe he will. But if he does, God laments that tragedy. Jesus tells us we should pray for our enemies. So what do we do with the heartless? Or... Put aside the heartless, right? That's a hard problem. Put aside the heartless. What about the heart sick? What about the heart broken? What can we do about that? I want to tell you two more news stories, tell you about two more news stories. I saw this one. This is a story from Japan. It's a Washington Post story about Japan. There's so many people in Japan who are dying alone that there's a new industry that's come up and a new word has been coined for the people who find out that somebody's been dead for four months because he has no friends, he doesn't work, nobody knows him, and he just dies alone. So there's people who you can contract with to clean up the mess afterwards. Can you imagine a whole industry, a little section in the yellow pages? cleaning up after people who died alone. Well, maybe you won't have to imagine it. The United States is becoming more and more lonely, according to data. And the generation that's being hit the hardest is the youngest, the Generation Z, the people uh, who come after the millennials, people my children's age. They are the most lonely population group in our country. So we may yet find out what it's like in Japan today. See, we're finding that the world 
is very good at solving some kinds of problems, but there's other kinds of problems where we can't seem to make any headway. For all the progress we make in terms of education and health care, in terms of eradicating disease, in terms of building tunnels under cities, there is a problem in people. The psychologist Abraham Maslow put together something he called the hierarchy of needs. Maybe you've heard about it. But the idea is the physiological, that's, that's, it seems like a hard problem, right? You have to, you have to, you have to eat and live indoors. But he said that's only really the bottom. And there's more things on top of that. And so the question is, how well do we as a society address those deeper or maybe more primary needs? What do we do about that? What do we do about the heart sick? What do we do about the, the lonely? What do we do about the heart broken? And maybe even what do we do about the heart less? Well, our scripture today comes to us from Ezekiel's vision of dry bones. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel was ministering in what is today modern-day Iraq. What had happened is over the last 20 years, Israel, what was left of Israel at that point, uh, was, a, was a region in the south called Judah, and it had been conquered by um, the Persian emperor, the, not the Persian, the Babylonian emperor, Neb- Nebuchadnezzar. He conquered Judah, and he destroyed the temple. He destroyed all of Jerusalem, actually, um, and he uh, deported the, the great mass of people to Babylon. He just shipped them all off to a foreign country, and that is called the Babylonian captivity or the Babylonian exile. And Ezekiel was ministering to that population. And there's no way of guessing how much death and violence they had seen and how much they had been subjected to individually. But to them, he spoke this vision. He said he had this vision of a valley of dry bones. He said, he said I saw this great valley filled with dry bones. The Lord showed it to me. And the Lord asked the question, can these bones live again? And I said, God only knows. He said, literally, no one can look at those bones and say, I know for sure they can live. No one but God. He said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And God tells him, speak a prophetic message to these bones. Say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life and then you will know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel speaks that prophetic message in the vision. He speaks it to the bones. And there's a rattling noise and the bones come together. Bone joins to bone and then flesh comes on them, forms over the bones. The skin formed to cover the bodies, but there was no breath in them. So now they're dead bodies. And he says, speak to prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath, from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. He has this vision, and then God interprets it for him. What does that vision mean? He says, son of man... These bones represent the people of Israel. They have been utterly defeated. They were defeated in a military conquest. Then they were carried off into a foreign land. 
they are little more than slaves. All hope is gone. They are saying, we have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore, prophesy to, prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O oh, my people, I will open your graves of exile and I will cause you to rise again. Bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, O oh, my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live again and return home to your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. We know historically that's exactly what happened. The people of Israel were in captivity for about 70 years in Babylon. And then Babylon was conquered by Persia. And the new Persian emperor uh, allowed them to go home. They went back to Israel. This prophecy came true. Um, not probably in, a, in Ezekiel's time frame, but within a generation or so. God spoke hope to people where all hope was lost. Because that's what God does. When hope is gone, God makes alive. And that brings us to Pentecost because that is what Pentecost is all about. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus assembled his disciples and he commissioned them. He told them, you will be my witnesses in the world. He said, you will begin in Jerusalem, right where you are now, but you will spread out to the surrounding regions. You will go to Judea and Samaria, but ultimately you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then he said, wait, don't start yet. He said, wait until the Holy Spirit comes and you will be clothed on power from on high. And then Jesus ascended into heaven and 10 days later, the disciples were together and the spirit was poured out on them on Pentecost, the 50th day. The Spirit was poured out on them. They began to prophesy. There was a commotion. The people in the neighborhood came running to find out what was going on. Peter speaks a a sermon explaining what has gone on, that the Spirit of God has been poured out on all flesh, as had been promised through the prophet Joel centuries before. 3,000 people joined the church that day, and so we commemorated it as the birthday of the church. And we have the message, we have the mission to proclaim this message that when hope is lost, God brings to life. This is the work of the church. When hope is gone, the church gives hope. The Apostle Paul tells uh, his church, uh, he, he was writing to a church in Rome about 25 years after Pentecost, The Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome, and he says, you have been given the same gifts. It's been 25 years. Pentecost is over. But the Holy Spirit continues to be poured out on the church, and you have been given gifts to carry out the work that Ezekiel promised. He said, this is the work of the church. The ongoing mission of the church is to proclaim the good news that Jesus has reconnected us to God and that in him we have new life, that dead people have hope. Jesus' Jesus's own mission applies to the church, the mission to proclaim release to the captives and good news to the poor, to give hope to the hopeless, to give hope to the heart sick and the heart broken and even the heartless. And so we have different gifts. Paul says, he says, um, 
that we each are bodies. And, and remember, we've got this image in, in the background, the bones coming on bone to build a single body. He says, we are like that in the church. Each of us is like a body part come together that the Spirit then brings life into. And he goes on to say, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you, and so forth. He lists different illustrative gifts, but ultimately he says, everyone among us has a gift that we can use to bring about human flourishing. And you know this from your own life. You know there are things that you're just good at, that people look at you and say, he got twice as much work done in the same amount of time as I did. Part of it was my natural gifting. Part of it was my experience. Part of it was just plain practice. But I'm just better at that thing than some people are. And you know the same thing. There's other people who work with you. People in your family, people at your job, people in your neighborhood. And they do something and you say, I could not possibly do their job. That job would drive me crazy or it would wear me out or I just wouldn't know where to begin. You know that we all have different gifts. Paul says, use those gifts to bring about human flourishing. If you think of the picture from Ezekiel, he shows this picture where first the bodies come together. First, the bottom layer of Maslow's hierarchy is addressed. First, we provide food and shelter. We build a better society. We build the kind of place that Steven Pinker and Max Roser talk about, a place where 100,000 people are lifted out of poverty every day. But he goes on. He says, and do the same thing in the church. You have been given gifts to use in the church so the church can be about its work of proclaiming release to captives and hope to the heartbroken. He says, what gift has the Spirit given you? What is it that brings you to life? Use that as a member of the church. And I know some of you are not members, and so I encourage you, if you're not a member of the church, become a member of the church. Say, I'm ready to be part of the work of the church. I'm ready to be part of proclaiming the good news, not just in at the bottom layers of Maslow's hierarchy, but up at the very top, up where people's spirits are dry and hope is gone. I want to be part of that work. And then look for the gifts that God has given you. How is the Spirit working in you? What brings you to life? Because the Spirit brings life. The church has been given the mission of proclaiming the same thing to our world today that Ezekiel proclaimed to those exiles in Babylon. That when hope is lost, God brings life. God brings hope to the heartbroken, hope to the heart sick, and even hope to the heartless. If you talked to Paul after he wrote that letter, Paul, tell me something about your story. He would have said, you know, I was one of them. I wasn't a school shooter, but I could have been. He said, I was the chief of sinners. I persecuted the church. But I am what I am. And through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, all praise to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has made me an apostle of the good news. There is even hope for the heartless. Let's be the church. Let's carry out the work of proclaiming hope 
to a lost world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the gifts you've given us, that that we are different. Each of us has skills and and unique capabilities that we can can contribute to the progress and material well-being of the world around us. So Lord, help us to find those and refine those so that we can be part of making the world a better place. But Lord, let us not be limited to how we can make the world a better place at the material level. Help us to raise our sights above to help heal the the loneliness, the heart-sick brokenness that is so much a part of so many people. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who is feeling heartbroken or heart-sick. Lord, that you would allow your church to bring good news to them, that they too could hear a message of hope and deliverance. Lord, equip us as we conclude our service today. Equip us as we go back into the world to be messengers of hope. We pray it all through Christ our Lord. Amen.